0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 24th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hi from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up.
1: Well, I want to thank everybody. This is a fantastic state. This is a great, great state.
0: Donald Trump beats Nikki Haley in the New Hampshire primaries. She'll said she'll keep on fighting, but we'll ask if she should. Also ahead, Germany's train drivers go on strike for a fourth time. We'll explore the implications for the country as a whole. Turkey approves Sweden's application to join NATO. We'll examine what this means for Sweden, for NATO, and the benefits President Erdogan stands to gain for his country. Plus the papers too. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US as diplomats are working to mediate an extended ceasefire in Gaza to enable the exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. A plane carrying Rio Tinto workers in Canada has crashed, killing several of those on board. And North Korea has reportedly demolished a major monument in its capital that symbolised the goal of reconciliation with South Korea. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories, but First, we begin in the US, where Donald Trump has beaten Nikki Haley in the New Hampshire Republican presidential primary. With only the two of them going head to head, this was Nikki Haley's one big shot at stopping Trump from securing his place at the Republican candidacy. But Ms Haley says the race is far from over. However, it puts Mr Trump in a commanding position. H.J. Mai reports now from New Hampshire.
2: When the polls opened in New Hampshire on Tuesday, it was dixville Notch that gave Nikki Haley an early lead. She won support from all six registered voters there. It's tradition for the tiny resort township to vote first at midnight. For Haley, the goal was clear. Win over moderate Republicans and independent voters in the state and keep the margin between her and Trump as close as possible. But as the day went on and the first results trickled in, it became obvious that New Hampshire will once again deliver a primary victory for Donald Trump. Preliminary results showed the former president received roughly 54% of the vote, but he wouldn't know it listening to his victory speech.
1: I said, I can go up and I can say to everybody, oh, thank you for the victory, it's wonderful. It's what, Or I can go up and say, who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and like claimed a victory? She did very
2: poorly actually. Trump, who is now firmly on his way to secure the Republican nomination, was visibly annoyed with his opponent's decision to remain in the race. She didn't win. She lost. Despite trailing Trump by more than 10 percentage points, Haley vowed to keep going.
3: This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. (laughs) Next one is my sweet state of South Carolina.
2: But most political experts don't believe that Haley has a path forward that would get her to South Carolina, which hosts its primary at the end of February. I spoke with Republican strategist Ellis Stewart shortly after the results came in.
0: Donald Trump has resoundingly won Iowa and New Hampshire, and it's a clear sign that Republican voters are, are standing firm behind him
2: it appears the only thing that could stop Donald Trump now are his legal issues. The former president faces 91 charges across four criminal cases, including his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. But even that wouldn't stop Republicans from voting for him, as polls have indicated. And moreover.
0: The problem is a lot of these legal cases aren't going to be decided and adjudicated until late in the, in the season. And many of these races will already have been foregone conclusion.
2: So the country is looking at another Trump versus Biden matchup for the fall. For Monocle, I'm HGMI.
4: Well,
0: listening to that was Chris Chermak, Monocle Senior News Editor. Very good morning to you, Chris.
4: Good morning. Emma. OK,
0: so we are on the second primary. We have done two so far, but there is very much a sense, would you agree, that we're sort of fixed
4: now? It's pretty incredible simply to ask that, I have to say, uh, when you think about it, given uh, to one of Nikki Haley's points in her speech uh, last night, I guess we should say, uh, this is only the second primary. There are still 48 other primaries, uh, states to vote. That said, this was the one, this was the one that Nikki Haley needed ideally to win in order to give people a sense that Donald Trump could be beaten in this primary race. She outperformed somewhat compared to the opinion polls earlier. She got about 43% of the vote. Uh, That is still better than expected, but Donald Trump was over 50%, as H.J. Mai said there, around 54%. That's not really enough to convince people that she has a shot at this. She does, though, have the two-person race that she always wanted. It's worth... Thinking about that, the fact that a year ago we had 14 candidates, she got down to this two-person race. I don't think many people would have expected her to be the one who was standing against Donald Trump um, at this point in the race. She put everything she had into New Hampshire. She's been there throughout this year. I saw her at a town hall there last year as well. She really gave it all she's got. The fact that she didn't win is significant, but she has a small path, if you will, to, to stay in the race. I
0: mean, it, that, that final line, but she has a small path to stay in the race, having given a long list of the amount of commitment, blood, sweat and tears and shoe leather worn out by Haley in New Hampshire. I mean, her level of focus has been unrivaled. She was, she was going for what? She was trying to get hold of the, the moderate vote.
4: Well, this is why I think New Hampshire was the one she was focusing on, yes. New Hampshire is known for giving the sort of mavericks, the, the underdogs, a chance. This is how the primary system is supposed to work in the United States. It allows those candidates who have lesser... Uh, name recognition aren't the sort of front-runner at the beginning, a chance to get on the ground, to talk to people, and show that they are up to the task. That is what Nikki Haley did. And she came incredibly far doing that to get to 43% of the vote compared to around 2 to 5% that she had at the beginning. So this is what candidates do, to be fair. This is the common strategy, if you will, in a primary. Throw everything you have in New Hampshire, and then you go on to the other states with whatever momentum or or lack of momentum you may have. You go on to the next states. She is betting on the next state being South Carolina, her home state. Uh, there is Nevada in between, one that she's basically given to Donald Trump. South Carolina is the one she will make her next big stand she 's the former governor there. She does not have the support of the political class they 've all voted for don they 've all gone for donald Trump endorsed Donald Trump inc- including Senator Tim Scott, the presidential candidate. So it is going to be extremely tough for her to win there if she can surprise somehow in South Carolina. That might give her some momentum.
0: I mean, how does she go about that? Because all the ingredients that you have just mentioned is that it would be a natural win for her. But the political class now having gone to Donald Trump suggests otherwise and and suggests that there seems to be a bigger thing here insofar as Donald Trump since 2016 has fundamentally reshaped the Republicans.
4: He has absolutely fundamentally reshaped the Republicans. And I think one, to look at some of the exit polling to, to get at that, one of the interesting aspects is the enthusiasm that you have among voters. Eight in ten uh, voters for Donald Trump voted for Donald Trump, if you will, because they were enthusiastic about him. That was not as much the case with Nikki Haley. Only about four in ten voted for her because they were enthusiastic about her. Many others voted basically against Donald Trump, if you will, and that was their reason for voting. So it does show that there is a surprising amount of enthusiasm for Donald Trump among his supporters and among a a large number of the Republican Party and, frankly, the political class. It is interesting compared to, say, 2016, how quickly the Republican establishment is prepared this time to basically tell Nikki Haley Get out of the race. This is done. Let's all coalesce around Donald Trump, and let's have a general election.
0: And this was the case. Was I mean, we we lost Ron DeSantis from the race two to three days ago. Now, um, did everybody who had been backing DeSantis immediately just switch to Trump, or, or is there anybody still backing Nikki Haley?
4: Not really. I mean, the one interesting case would have been Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor. He was the sort of anti-Trump voice. He has not endorsed anybody. He would have been most likely to endorse perhaps Nikki Haley. But no, essentially, nobody is backing Nikki Haley herself at this point going forward. She has made the argument that this is what she's done her entire life. She always fights against the political class. She's won against the odds. That's her argument. But as I say, I think that argument works up to South Carolina, as you were saying, Emma, in that. That's a natural state for her to win. If she cannot win there, it's hard to find any argument for her to continue.
0: So let's focus on Donald Trump. I mean, just listening to the the, the excerpt, you know, a moment ago, that fact that he said, you know, I could play nicely, but I'm not going to. I'm, I'm, you know, the visible annoyance he has of anybody he seems to get in his way, and also that tone. It's a, it's a tone that was familiar to us up until 2020, and it is back, isn't it? And it really does, sort of, it does sort of frames the next few months.
4: It, it is back. It is interesting. I would say that he did focus so much of his speech, if you will, on Nikki Haley and and the gall, if you will, that she has to challenge him. Um, She has, in some sense, clearly gotten under his skin, which which is perhaps one other small reason to say that perhaps she has more of a shot than some people might be giving her, simply the fact that Donald Trump would even focus so much of a speech on her. But yes, his style, the style of his speech, the way he speaks about Nikki Haley, the way he was prepared to to sort of it was almost as if he also had some extra ammunition as he often likes to do and says i'm not going to talk about these things but i will when the time comes those kinds of things along those lines he suggested that investigations would be launched immediately against her if she were any kind of front runner so yes all of that style is back and it's something that we are going to get have to get used to there
0: is the small matter though of the legal issues and the, the what the the 91 charges that Donald Trump now faces What effect could this, could the law have on what seems to be an inevitable path to the presidential candidacy?
4: It could potentially have a big effect. The question uh, well, there's two questions I would say. One is simply the timing of all of these legal cases. We do not know at this point when any of these court cases really are going to go to trial because the Supreme Court. Lower courts first, and then the Supreme Court will have to rule on whether Trump is immune to these charges, and so on and so forth. So, at the point, there's simply a question of when, whether this will even happen before a general election, for example. If there is a trial, if Donald Trump is convicted in one or multiple court cases court trials before the November election, then it does get interesting, because to take this back to New Hampshire, it is worth saying there is exit polling that, yes, a majority of Republicans say they would still vote for him, but around 40% of New Hampshire Republicans said they would not vote for Donald Trump if he is convicted of a crime. That is a significant amount to take into a general election with Joe Biden, given that this is going to be a close race regardless. At the moment, Donald Trump leads Joe Biden in polling, which shows you that he is, if you will, the the favorite at this point. But a conviction could certainly change those numbers. But
0: it would set up Donald Trump political winner against the legal system. And then we go back to that old arguments that's continued for the last few years about democracy versus the law and being set against each other.
4: It absolutely does, but I would argue that's that's what we have right now. It is the political system against the legal system, Donald Trump arguing that he is being persecuted by the political class. I will say that I even spoke when I was in the US to Trump supporters who said they have faith, if you will, in the court system. And that is, I think, why... It is significant to say that if a jury of his peers, in front of a judge, particularly, for example, the case in Miami, and you know, with the with the documents case in Mar-a-Lago, if that goes against Donald Trump in Miami with a favorable judge to him that he nominated in place, that will give even some Republican voters some pause to say, well, the court process played out. Yes, this was a politically motivated pr- prosecution but a court found him guilty. That's what changes things slightly.
0: Uh, you mentioned that uh, the... the the reaction from Joe Biden. I mean, what what has the Biden camp said about this? I mean, obviously setting themselves up for a Biden-Trump uh, showdown for the next few few months. I think the New York Times' front page this morning is saying it's, it's dispatching to aides uh, to take the reins of the re-election campaign. We have um, Jennifer O'Malley-Dillon, who's a campaign manager for the 2020 campaign. She's been deputy chief of staff in the White House. She's now leaving that. She's now going off to do things. What does the Biden camp do now to to try and stop this juggernaut?
4: That is a good question. It's not going to be easy. For one thing, uh, it's worth saying that Joe Biden released a statement for the fact that he won New Hampshire himself. It's its worth noting that as well. There was a primary race in uh, among the Democrats as well. Uh, Dean Phillips is one candidate who was trying to run against Joe Biden. He got around 20% of the vote, not enough to beat Joe Biden by any stretch. And Joe Biden also, it's worth saying, issued a statement that also essentially makes clear that he expects Donald Trump to be the next nominee. That is key in itself. He did not give Haley a chance in in that way. He's ready for this fight against Donald Trump. As you say, his campaign is gearing up for that fight. They're going to have to make an argument, particularly on the economy. That was the top issue for voters in New Hampshire and elsewhere. That's a tough sell with inflation still being high in the United States and so on and so forth. That's going to be one of the key arguments they're going to have to turn around as well as, of course, the question of democracy and safeguarding democracy in the United States.
0: Chris Chermak, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. 10.16am in Moscow, 7.16am here in London. Now, the UN Security Council met yesterday to discuss the Israel-Gaza conflict with a warning that Gaza may now be in a state of famine. But while the focus remains primarily on efforts to bring about an end to the war on the sidelines, was Russia's Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. I'm joined by Stephen Diel, Russia analyst and regular Monocle radio contributor. Very good morning to you, Stephen.
5: Good morning, Emma.
0: Welcome back. Now, he was there for the UN security meeting. Um, What contribution? did Lavrov, Lavrov make in that context? I mean, there was a mention of the Ukraine peace plan and, and a dismissal of it as well.
5: Oh, absolutely. Um, it's difficult really to, to sum up Lavrov without just saying that he's probably the second biggest liar in Russia, Putin being the biggest. Um, and I have in front of me his speech that he made, in fact, on on Monday uh, at the UN. He was given the chance to address the, the chamber. Uh, and it sounds as if if you didn't know, if you just changed one or two words, you'd think he was talking about Russia and not the Western Ukraine. For example, I, I'll quote one um, in, in, in full. He says, Russia launched the special military operation in February 22, not against Ukraine or the Ukrainian people with whom we are still bound by fraternal ties. Um, which, which, of course, is complete nonsense. That's so exactly what they, they did launch it against Ukraine because they want to try and destroy Ukraine as an independent country. And he then goes on to criticize. He didn't call it the West. He talks about a, a phrase the Russians have used a lot lately, the Anglo-Saxons. In other words, the Brits and the Americans. Um, and he accuses them of raising to the ground uh, Mosul in Iraq and Raqqa in Syria and, um, forgetting of course that um, Russia has raised to the ground uh, Mariupol having already done the similar thing in its own country to uh, uh, to Grozny in, in Chechnya um, he talks about the ranks of political prisoners would swell in Ukraine if Ukraine were not being backed by the west no no the country with the political prisoners is Russia and then he has the cheek to say that uh, to talk about the despicable staging of the crime in Bucha in April 2022 when, of course as we all know uh, Russia had carried out uh, uh, massacres rapes and 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 tortures of civilians, and all the evidence is there, and he's he's accusing the West of staging it. So it's it's bizarre, and it's rather worrying that he can have a big stage like the UN to to repeat these lies.
0: Um, That's what he said in public, but the sidelines is where the focus now must go. Uh, Notably, conversations with Iran, conversations with Turkey, and conversations with Lebanon. If we can take those in turn, let's begin with Iran, where there was a sort of an unusual step where Russia and Iran agreed on a on a ceasefire in principle in Gaza.
5: Yeah, well, this this again this carries on that theme of uh turning reality on its head because at a time when Russia is waging a war and that's been for nearly 2 years in Ukraine, um Russia thinks in in the person in this case of Lavrov that it can go to the UN and talk peace and say, now, now, you know, this conflict that's going on in the Middle East mustn't be allowed to spread. You, you must sit down and, and, and bring peace to the situation. And, and, you know, he's talking to Iran and saying, um, you, you know, you, you must not get involved in a military way. You must also work for peace. Um, it, it's, it's bizarre because, it, it again, it just simply flies in the face of what Russia is actually doing itself elsewhere.
0: Um, now let's move on to the conversation with Turkey. I mean, he, there is a plan, isn't there, for for next month for Vladimir Putin to go to, go to Turkey to talk to Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But as we're going to hear in, in a few minutes' time, uh, Turkey has just ratified the acceptance of Sweden into NATO. One feels as if you know Turkey is is, is playing. Towards NATO at this precise moment with that gesture, but Absolutely. what do what do what do Russia and Turkey and, what, and Lavrov's um, involvement stand, stand to move Gail on this? Well,
5: uh, as we're in January, I'll, I'll take the god Janus who looked both ways, and that seems to me sum up Turkey. Turkey. Uh, loves the idea at least erdogan loves the idea that he is the man in the middle he he can play both sides he's uh, he he can turn his face to the west he can also turn his face to russia and that's been the case for some time now um, and erdogan loves the fact that he can he he can be seen by russia to be a key player and then, as you say, in the next minute, be seen by the West and NATO in particular to be a key player because they're now saying you know, it's thanks to Turkey, it seems, that, that Sweden will be able to join NATO. Um, and somehow he manages to play this game. And we don't know exactly what was said in the talks uh, between Turkey and and, uh, and, and Russia um, because it was behind closed doors. Um, I'm sure that Lavrov will, will, will maybe be trying a bit of carrot and stick because he knows, too, that... Uh, politically and geographically, of course, Turkey is in a key position in all of this. Um, And that suits Erdogan. uh, And the fact that Putin will go there, it also that, of course, um, that's Turkey slightly thumbing its nose to the West because, um, you know, the the International Court of Justice in in The Hague has put out a, a warrant on Putin's arrest. So anyway, if Putin went in Western Europe. Or at least west of Russia, he would be arrested, whereas Turkey is allowing him to go there. It seems next month. Um, so th- it's th- this is a it's a curious one. It's very difficult to, to pin it down exactly to what's going on, except for the fact that Turkey loves playing the middleman.
0: And finally, a- touching on Lebanon, the 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 discussion with the foreign minister. And uh, and Sergey Lavrov was the importance of an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. What progress, or indeed what influence, does Russia have in this?
5: I think this really is Russia trying to show that it still is a, a major player on the world stage, which actually comes back to the root of so many problems that that Russia has and has caused for the world. Um, what drives Putin, perhaps most of all, is his resentment. He doesn't feel that the West is going to destroy Russia, even though that's one of his lines. He knows that's not going to happen. What he resents is the fact that since the breakup of the Soviet Union, the West has not treated Russia as an equal partner. The Soviet Union was seen as a superpower. Russia is not. And that's what Putin wants to get back to. He wants this this Russian empire of a sort to be recreated with parts of Ukraine and and other other former Soviet states. Uh, But it's this resentment that Russia doesn't count. And this is his way of saying, look, we still count. You see this Middle East crisis. We're in there, too. We, you know, we, we our voice has to be heard. And I think that's the crucial thing here. And also there's this irony again that um, uh, Lavrov is saying, you know, that the, the peace must be brought to this this situation and, and Lebanon mustn't be drawn into it at the same time as they continue to, to, to uh, send missiles into Ukraine uh, and kill Ukrainians.
0: Stephen D.L., thank you as ever. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to
3: our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: It's time now for a look at the newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Monocle's Vincent McIverney. Good morning, Vinny. Good morning. So we're going to range widely from Houthi airstrikes to Barbie. It's on the way. That's caused all manner of political problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, um, US strikes on Yemen overnight, Um there's sort of a rapidly evolving ticker on lots and lots of newspaper websites, but how's it been covered?
6: Yeah, that's right. The Guardian's live blog has some pretty good coverage of what went on, uh, including the sort of confirmation from U.S. Central Command that uh, U.S. forces identified missile sites in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen, determined that they presented an imminent threat to merchant vessels and the US Navy ships in the Red Sea and so carried out more strikes on those positions. Uh, It's unclear yet as to what the sort of scale of the damage is. They haven't sort of put out any kind of photos yet. But obviously, this is something that they think they're in for the long haul. Uh, We had the UK joining once again earlier this week in these strikes. uh, And there's some interesting coverage as well, uh, some frustration growing in Washington Uh, of the lack of action taken in particular by Beijing. Now, Beijing, obviously, it is a country which exports Uh, China is a country which exports hugely. Uh, The primary shipping route to get their goods into Europe is, of course, through the Red Sea, uh, through the Suez Canal. And this is causing massive problems uh, for global shipping. They're having to go around the Cape uh, of Good Hope all the way around the continent of Africa. That's adding roughly two weeks. That's more pay for fuel, more pay for the staff on board. And that's going to impact prices for consumers in Europe and therefore potentially hurt China's trade. Uh, And I think there's real frustration frustration that's it's felt in the White House in particular, that China uh, has been asked to urge Iran to rein in the Houthi rebels, and they don't seem to have done enough to do this yet. And it's in their own interests.
0: Okay, we'll carry on looking at that. Uh, Let's move to a story from the United Kingdom. Another senior conservative uh, is calling for the departure of Rishi Sunak uh, as a a sort of a warning sign that the Tories recognise that they are absolutely on the ropes when it comes to winning this year's general election. Um, Would getting rid of Rishi Sunak and finding another conservative leader um, be a good idea?
6: I mean, the fourth Conservative leader since the last general election, uh, I did pr- think that, probably yes. not a great idea. Uh, and what's really interesting is it's, it's two stories I'll highlight. So one is the article written by uh, Sir Simon Clarke in the uh, Telegraph. Now, he worked for Rishi Sunak very, very closely at the Treasury. He was Chief Secretary to the Treasury when Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor. So these two worked very closely. Uh, but then he went into government with Liz Truss. And he's very much of the Liz Truss wing of the party, uh, which is uh wanting to try and now as, as david Gork, who's writing a piece in the new statesman today is t- saying they're basically trying to lay the pitch already for after the election they all think rishi sunak's going to win it's only the degree that he wants to win but what you're seeing in the Conservatives is they were always a big tent. You had the sort of Europhile wing with the Eurosceptic wing. You had social Conservatives, uh, along with just sort of the fiscal Conservatives. Uh, and what David Cameron did sort of 20 years ago was managed to bring all these and hold these together. But the fractures have been building since the Brexit referendum. But now they're all forming these weird little groups like the new Conservatives and the pop Conservatives. And there's, it's like sort of the five families of the mafia all trying to sort of play together. Uh, and- and who knows how many of them at the moment it seems less than 100 will survive uh after the uh, general election uh, but what uh, david gork who who himself used to be in cabinet uh, under the likes of um uh, Cameron and Theresa May says uh, is uh, making no a mistake. You know, Simon Clark knows that it would be a terrible idea to, and also just so impractical to replace Rishi Sunak now. But this is all about trying to direct the party afterwards and trying to say that oh no no, what Liz trusted to the economy that wasn't that was just uh, a bit of messaging problems. Those policies are right. Uh,
0: what I can't fathom is that if you're going to have this kind of argument, why do you do it in public? Because it just suggests that you have. Um, you know, those, those divisions and those mm. factions should in theory be kept behind closed doors because a united message and a united front surely is something which is is reassuring.
6: Because I think politics everywhere has got messy in the past decade and there is a reality show element to all of this. We've had a reality show uh, president. We have MPs randomly popping up in reality shows all the time now. Uh, and I think part of it is because... Many of them just feel that they're no longer satisfied to just work away as constituency MPs and send out their newsletters and do appearances. They want to be, you know, booked on GB News. They want to be booked on talk TV. And the way to do that is to sort of have these spats and these little viral moments. Uh, and it's very much a party, you know, that is D-Mob happy at the moment. Uh, and what will be really fascinating is post-election, expected later this year, in all likelihood, Rishi Sunak will lose. Um, this is a party which could, you know, potentially be out of power for a decade. Uh, and you know, Labour have had this experience. They went for the sort of sensible candidate, uh, you know, Ed Miliband, for five years. Then they went wild and went to Jeremy Corbyn. Then they've pulled it back with Zakir Starmer. Whether or not the Conservatives, you know, depending on who survives, pull as hard to the right as Labour did during the Corbyn years on the left uh, will be quite fascinating to watch because all the sort of signs show that that's not where the British public is.
0: OK, uh, very briefly, we talked about um, Donald Trump uh beating Nikki Haley in New Hampshire overnight. Mm. Um, Obviously, we're now looking at, again, another political forecasting uh, piece that you wanted to draw our attention to in the Times, saying, um, who could be Donald Trump's vice presidential candidate if and when he seals the the Republican presidential nominee?
6: Yeah, he said he's got a short list. Obviously, it won't be Mike Pence again after he tried to kill him at the capital essentially um but he's uh, he's very likely it's believed to be either looking for a woman candidate uh or a black uh candidate so he basically has a couple of names he says he's looking at the times sort of profiles them all one really recent one elise stefanik uh who is a sort of trump loyalist who made headlines in that congressional hearing when she took down the leaders of several universities which led to then the resignation of uh, the leaders of Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, She is someone who has been trying to attract his attention. I think the one on this list which is really interesting is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who of course was his press secretary for, you know, half of his administration. She has now gone off and become the uh, governor of Arkansas. But I think she is, you know, a woman who knows trump he always rewards loyalty he'll want you know his his team behind is so changed from where he was when he was in the white house uh and he has so few sort of allies left that if she's willing to do it he'll want her because He knows her and he feels he can trust her. But some other names sort of being banded around, Tim Scott, which I think is the really fascinating one, who was himself running for president, who just seemed constantly bewildered. He is the only (laughs) uh, uh, black Republican in the Senate. But what is fascinating is that Nikki Haley, um, who was the governor of South Carolina, uh, elevated him to that position and now he's not even rewarding her by backing her. He's just saying that she's terrible and going for Trump.
0: I do quite like the idea of someone who's a press secretary suddenly becoming the governor of a state. Uh, finally, <laughs> we said that we would talk about the Oscars. Um, the, it's not who has been nominated but who hasn't been nominated, mm. which has caused all the, all the headlines uh, to the point where Ryan Gosling has gone on the internet in the last 12, uh, 12 hours to talk about the fact that he's been nominated for Best Supporting Actor, whereas the director and the leader leading actor in Barbie have not.
6: Yeah, that's right. There's a great piece in The New Yorker called The Oscars Are Confused About Barbie. And it makes comparisons actually to Jaws and Steven Spielberg, where, you know, the movie was a huge global hit, it sort of changed cinema a bit, it was what everyone was talking about, Real became part of culture. But Whilst the movie got nominated for uh, best film, he did not get best director, and we're seeing the same again. Greta Gerwig, she has been nominated for best what they're saying adapted screenplay, not original screenplay, which is quite a weird decision, but hasn't received the nomination for director, which is so strange when it was such a very creative and quite old school uh, film in terms of the production that she that she put in place for things, uh, and of course uh, Margot Robbie not getting nominated for Barbie itself, but Ken. Uh, Ryan Gosling getting the nomination for uh, Best Supporting Actor, which I think he's been in a strong contention for, and America Ferrera getting Best Supporting Actress, which I don't think is a stronger runner. That's caught people by surprise. So it's quite set, it's sort of, you know, we all think of that monologue that America Ferrera gave about what it is to be a woman and, and not being, you know, be, you know, be this, but to not be thin, that. You be, have to be healthy, yes, but not thin, but, this, this, but you have to you be thin. You be asking, have to be grateful. Yeah. That's All it. of that kind of stuff. And yet it could be Ryan uh, Gosling, who was fantastic, but he... as the man in the production gets the glory. And also, there's now this awkward situation in Best Original Song, uh, where you've got Billie Eilish, What Was I Made For?, which is a beautiful song, versus I'm Just Ken by Ryan Gosling.
0: Again, a beautiful so, song.
6: Again, yeah, but he could, uh, you know, beat the woman that's a part of this film, which is all about womanhood uh, and feminism, uh, and take away the gongs on the night. It's a
0: good article in the New Yorker. It says uh, the problem with Barbie, well, problem with Oppenheimer, which is the one that everyone's protected... Um, predicted to uh, to, to, mm. to sweep the board is that um, it's it's got no jokes and it's not pink and that's what makes it an Oscar winner. Vincent Magovini, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. The time here in London is 7.34am. A look now at the headlines. The U.S. says diplomats are working to mediate an extended ceasefire in Gaza to enable the exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. The White House says its envoy is having active discussions on the issue. Qatar, the U.S. and Egypt have held shuttled diplomacy since the end of last month. A plane carrying Rio Tinto workers in Canada has crashed, killing several of those on board. The plane was in the remote Northwest territories en route to the Diavik Diamond Mine. And North Korea has reportedly demolished a major monument in its capital that symbolised the goal of reconciliation with South Korea. It's understood the country's leader, Kim Jong-un, ordered the move. A satellite imagery of Pyongyang shows the monument, which is an arch symbolising hopes for Korean reunification, is no longer there. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. <laughs> 10:35 a.m. in Ankara, 8:35 in Zurich. Now, the Turkish Parliament has voted to approve Sweden's application to join NATO. Stockholm had originally applied alongside Finland following the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. But while Finland joined as the 31st member of NATO in April, Sweden struggled. Its attempts blocked by both Turkey and also Hungary. That has changed, and Dr. Marian Mesmer is a senior research fellow in international security at Chatham House and joins me now. Very good morning. Thank you, Marian.
7: Good
0: morning. So if you could just briefly outline the original problems uh, that Turkey had with Sweden.
7: There were a range of problems and one of the things that Swedish diplomats found quite confusing is that they also changed over time. So at first um, Turkey's problem was that uh, Sweden traditionally um, has taken in a range of Kurdish refugees. And so um, the Turkish government claimed that Sweden was uh, supporting the PKK and therefore playing into domestic tensions within Turkey and then um that that slightly morphed over time there was also an unfortunate incident in sweden during that time period um where some um quran's were burned so the turkish government also took that as um anti-muslim and anti-turkish activity so um so that was one of the big issues support for uh for kurds and support for potential separatist forces within turkey but then turkey also tried to turn that into a deal with the u.s um over fighter jets. So essentially, we've seen Erdogan try to use the Swedish NATO accession for various bits of leverage, which has really um, extended the period that Sweden has had to wait.
0: We'll come to those fighter jets in a minute because they do play a very important role in all this. But first, what has changed, which has meant that in the last 24 hours, the Turkish parliament has voted to approve the Swedish application?
7: I don't think anything has necessarily changed in the last 24 hours, but what we have seen over the last year and a bit is essentially various parts of the alliance, um, applying a lot of pressure on Turkey. Uh, so Turkey is a really important ally. If you look at the, um, if you look at where NATO's borders are, but at the same time, it has been a somewhat awkward ally for a number of years now. And so, um, that there have been various different conversation streams ongoing where different allied governments and especially the U.S. and of course um, Sweden as well have tried to use their leverage to convince Turkey to allow Sweden to join. We've seen in the case of Finland that Turkey absolutely recognizes the strategic importance of NATO and was able to see why it would be important to shore up NATO's eastern border in that way by adding Finland as another strong ally. But in the case of Sweden it seems that Turkey was slightly less convinced and um, over time Various mini-deals have been formed that then, I think, have allowed the Turkish government to change their opinion on this.
0: And these fighter jets, the, the concessions that Recep Tayyip Erdogan have obtained from the U.S. are significant, aren't they?
7: They are. So one of the, one of the challenges um, that Turkey as an ally has posed over the years is that they, um, uh, as I said earlier, they, they have been slightly awkward. So one of the big concerns for NATO as an alliance is that all military equipment that all allies purchase, um, can work well with each other. So that in the case that you need to rely on one another, you don't have an issue of someone using equipment that um, your equipment can't can't work with or that you don't understand. And one of the problems that Turkey has posed is that a few years ago, uh, they tried to buy um, air defense equipment from Russia. So given that Russia is, of course, one of the biggest adversaries of NATO, that posed a big challenge insofar as that most of the other allies were really worried that this could be a way for Russia to get information about um, NATO internal business that they actually would rather not share. Um, but in the end, Turkey really wanted to go ahead and purchase that equipment off Russia anyway for political reasons. So at the time, um, the US government then decided that Turkey wouldn't be able to participate in the upgrade of the fighter jets that are part of um, the NATO extended nuclear deterrence mission. And Turkey really wanted those fighter jets. So the fact that the uh, Biden administration has now agreed that Turkey would be able to purchase them is quite significant because uh, it shows a big concession on behalf of the US. And for Turkey, it's a big win. And it means that its role in the alliance is going to remain unchanged for the foreseeable future.
0: Dr. Mario Mesmer, thank
7: you so much for
0: joining us on Monocle Radio. You're with a globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Members of Germany's Train Drivers Union have begun a strike this morning that could see the country's rail network disrupted for the best part of a week. The union says it's rejected Deutsche Bahn's latest allegedly improved offer. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Karsten Brzezki, who's Global Head of Macro for ING Research. A very good morning to you, Carsten. Good morning. So this is the longest strike yet by these, this union, isn't it?
1: It is in, indeed the the longest strike ever. Um, but not to forget, we already had a very short one at the start of the year. So I think people are really getting extremely annoyed by these strikes.
0: Tell us just a little bit of the background about it. This is a pay and conditions row, isn't it?
1: Exactly. Well, the, the funny thing is that we're really talking about the the, the train drivers. So there's only a small union. There is even a bigger union which covers the entire railroad. But and and they agreed on a deal already last year. So this is now a smaller union, and they indeed um, want to have shorter working hours at the same at the same salaries. Um, and they want to have a bit more flexibility. As I think rightly so. They are saying we have too little people driving these trains. We need more. We need to be more attractive, and the attractiveness only comes by more flexible working hours.
0: And um, and what have the Deutsche Bahn's positions been in the in, in the various stages of this dispute? Because this has been going on for how long now?
1: This is now going on since, um, well, this last round is since uh, early December. Um, and, and there had been some offers by Deutsche Bahn. Um, Deutsche Bahn, actually, the latest offer was not too bad. Deutsche Bahn said, well, we, we agree to your terms, but we will only have them kick in um, in 2027. And then the union said, no, this is too early. This is too late. We really want to have it already as of now.
0: So, just tell us a little bit about you know. You've already said that the, that Germany is irritated by this. What does this mean if you are trying to travel in Germany today?
1: Well, this is going to hit commuters. This is also going to hit freight transportation. So, we're not only talking about passenger uh, railroads, but also about really uh, goods transports. Um, hardly anything is gonna go. Um, They say that there will be a schedule, every fifth train apparently is supposed to to go, but listen, we've had so many uh, railroad strikes now over the last month and years, and people no longer believe in it. The only upside is, that, that people are used to work from home, that uh, employers are also used to having their employees working from home. So I simply guess that more people will stay at home. And, and the other thing is we will have more traffic jams on the roads.
0: So it's, it's one of those things now that the, the, the sting of the the strike doesn't seem to have perhaps the, the, the power that it would have done pre-COVID.
1: Um, probably not. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and the downside is that the irritation of people who I think, you know, initially had some understanding for the unions. Um, but the irritation is going to growing because p- people no longer understand why isn't it possible to simply get to a compromise.
0: Um, so what happens next? Because trains need to run. And also we have not just trains running in Germany, there are trains running through Germany is is any kind of international travel going to be affected by this on the rails?
1: Well they they try uh, Deutsche Bahn tries to at least keep up these international trains uh, but I would wish you good luck if you try using them Um, so so I, I wouldn't do it there, there even is a funny anecdote these days that due, you know, there are so many problems in the German railroad system. So strikes are one, but we also have there are enormous delays over the last couple of years. So there is the the funny anecdote that uh, Switzerland no longer allows German trains to actually enter Switzerland because um, the delays of German trains completely messes up the entire um, Swiss train train system. So um, it, it is it is a big mess currently.
0: Um. How is this going to be solved, though?
1: Well, I guess they will find a compromise. Um, I guess that after the strikes, and strikes are now supposed to end um, late Monday next week, uh, so they will have new um, new negotiations, and then there will be a compromise. Uh, maybe that the, um, the shorter working hours, more flexible working hours will not kick in this year, but at the end of this year or, or early next year, I think that could be a good compromise.
0: What is the wider um, sort of reputational impact on, on Deutsche Bahn and indeed on transport across Germany, which is a country which until not very long ago has a reputation of being a reliable and indeed an enjoyable thing to do. But there are also talks, aren't there, um, within the aviation sector that the Labour Union Verdi is having a hard time or is is, is engaged in quite tough wage negotiations with Lufthansa. So we, we don't just have problems on the ground. There are problems that could be happening in the air as well.
1: There are currently problems almost everywhere in Germany and and Germany is, is paying the price for 10-15 years of not having invested in its infrastructure, not having invested in its people um, and also having kept uh, wages extremely low. And uh, now with the demographic change, a, a lack of qualified workers and a stagnating economy High inflation of the last couple of years. It was obvious that there will be more pressure coming from the unions, coming from uh, from employees, to ask for higher wages, and uh, and and the companies are not entirely willing to give them. So this is this we, this this will only be the start. Of I think more more labor fights in in Germany this year, and of course it is um, a damage, it's a scratch to the reputation of the country, which is depending on transportation because we are in the middle of Europe. Um, you know it's an export oriented economy, it depends on international transportation. so um, this is clearly not only damaging the reputation, it's also damaging the economy.
0: Karsten Brzezinski, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio.
2: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
6: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
2: To find out how we could help you,
6: contact us
2: at ubs.com.
0: It's time now to talk business. Isabel Hamilton is senior reporter at The Daily Upside. Very good morning to you, Isabel. Uh, good morning. Right, let's talk about Netflix. Um, Netflix constantly having to work out what its audiences want and how it makes sure it's still relevant and, and moving forward. Uh, sport is or isn't part of this?
8: Yeah, so um, Netflix has signed the deal with WWE. So they're going to be live streaming streaming uh, wrestling. And this is a really big deal. It's $5 billion for our 10 years exclusive streaming rights. And it kind of takes Netflix in the same direction as other streamers, because other streamers have gone in for things like uh, football, like American football. Netflix has mostly, mostly stayed away from that. And Netflix is currently the only streamer that's turning a profit, but they are insisting that wrestling does not count as sport. They're saying it's sports storytelling or sports entertainment. Um, So it's a really interesting sort of move from them to get into this space but then insist they're really not in this business.
0: Right. Okay. Do we go back to that argument that if it looks like a duck, waddles like a duck and quacks like a duck, then we know what it is?
8: Yeah, I don't want to upset any wrestling fans uh, or any sort of Olympic sports fans. Wrestling is, yeah, it is narrative, um, but it certainly has the same appeal as lots of sports do. So I think really drawing that distinction is perhaps not the no point in it. Why is it such a problem for Netflix? It's, I don't know why it's a problem. I think they probably just want to distinguish themselves from other streamers because other streamers aren't doing particularly well. Um, they probably also want to signal to investors that they shouldn't expect that Netflix is now going to buy the rights to, I don't know, the Premier League or something like that.
0: Uh, let's move on to another uh, online giant, but this one in retail. E- um, eBay getting rid of, what, a 1,000 jobs?
8: Yeah, so that's about 9% of its workforce. Um, it's pretty simple. They say that you know their costs have gone up and they need to cut back. Uh, the reason I sort of honed in on this one is that we saw a lot of reports so at the end of 2022 – we had really big job cuts in big tech and it was largely reported as a sort of post 2020 phenomenon lots of big tech companies overhired uh, right after the pandemic sort of dawned on us and they were having to cut back more recently though and I think eBay is part of this, we are still seeing rounds of layoffs. And I think that's an indicator that this isn't some post-2020 phenomenon. This is actually a wider industry trend that could continue for many years to come. We've had seen Google and Amazon do quite big cuts uh, early this year as well.
0: What does that mean for the restructuring of of large tech businesses when you do get rid of nearly 10% or one in 10 of your workforce? But also the way that if you are a customer and you use Google and Amazon and eBay, you yes, you have to accept that 99.9% of your experience is going to be digital and online, but the human element reduces even further.
8: Yeah, I think what this really shows is that big tech has sort of cottoned on that cash is not cheap anymore and their reserves are not bottomless. Uh,
0: and finally, uh, Hinkley C, the UK nuclear plant uh, in con- in construction, um, its bill has gone up, is that correct?
8: Yeah, by about a third. And to be honest, this isn't surprising. Uh nuclear power has a long history of costs absolutely ballooning. And it's sort of it it's it's yeah, it's very it's very typical. And it's perhaps a little bit worrying for the government, because I mean the government isn't developing Hickley Point C EDF is, but the UK government is really trying to pursue nuclear as a sort of route to, you know, net zero uh, renew renew sort of half a renewable, right? And they're putting a lot of hope in something called a small modular reactor, which is different to Hinkley Point C. It's much smaller, um, but it's kind of got this same question hanging over it of, you know, will the costs balloon and will there be an economy of scale at the end of this that actually makes it all worth it?
0: Isabel Hamilton, thank you for joining us on Monocle Radio. Let's head to Hong Kong now because Hauser and Wirt have opened a new gallery in Hong Kong with an exhibition by the Chinese artist Zhang Enli. Having been in the city since 2018, the Swiss Art Gallery has moved into a two-storey space in the Central District, Hong Kong's business and retail heart. It comes as major auction houses also unveil larger spaces in the city and just two months out from Art Basel, Hong Kong, its biggest international art fair. Well, I'm joined now from Hong Kong by Elaine Kwok, Asia Managing Partner for Hauser and Wirt. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, good, good sorry, good morning, I should say to you, Elaine.
3: Good morning, good afternoon, hello from sunny Hong
0: Kong. Uh, well, look, delighted to have you with us. And tell us about this new space that you have, which is bigger.
3: It's bigger, and not only is it bigger, it's on the street level. So what's really wonderful is we have direct access to the community. As a gallery, it's really part of our DNA to bring our spaces accessible to a broader audience. So anyone walking by, it's on one of the major thoroughfare streets here in Central called Queens Road. And if you walk by, people can pop in during their lunch break. But not only is it very visible to passerbys, it's also great car traffic. So everyone drives by here in the mornings. This new space gives us the flexibility. It's uh, one large gallery on the ground floor and then additional viewing rooms on the first floor. This brings our presence in Hong Kong in line with our other spaces in London and New York where we're always on the street level. What we want out of an exhibition is not just for sales. What we really want is our the exhibitions of our artists to be viewed by the community. So yeah, it's really wonderful. Central's a great place. It's not only the uh, the business heart of Hong Kong. It's also got a great vibrant arts community. Um, as you've said at the auction houses are all moving into new spaces in Central. Uh, also, there are other galleries, both international and local ones, and there are institutions um, in the form of Taekwon Contemporary, which is very nearby. So we're delighted that Zhang Enli has created our inaugural exhibition. And Lee was the first Asian artist to join our gallery in 2006. And he's had great museum exhibitions at the Long Museum in Shanghai, at the Hu Museum in Sunda. So we're really, really honoured and delighted to have him here.
0: There's all, obviously a, a great sense of momentum in Hong Kong by what you've just said in the art market. I mean, what are people interested in now? What are, how are their tastes changing?
3: I think the, ch- the taste is getting more diverse. I think the uh, the opening of new institutions such as M+, Palace Museum, Hong Kong and Taekwond have really helped to inform the audience even further. Our basel will be back this year um, in its full size after a brief hiatus for uh during the pandemic. It will be over 240 galleries, I believe. I'm very positive about Hong Kong as a major regional arts hub. Not only is it a free port for the transaction for art, it's also geographically very conveniently located. It's easy to navigate, everyone speaks English. So yeah, we feel that we really have a great role to play here in Hong Kong. I think with commercial galleries, it's really, uh, commercial galleries really can play a very important role in terms of developing tastes and in education for the market and for the community in general.
0: You have to ask a little bit about how the continuing political changes that, that are occurring in Hong Kong are, are affecting all this, or is this something that just does not touch art?
3: Honestly, it hasn't touched my work here. Uh, the arts are really thriving. Not only are the institutions new, but there's a lot of new buyers coming into the market. I think arts and engagement in the market is something that is uh, getting broader. There are younger collectors coming into the market. So we're really excited because coming up after this exhibition with Zhang and Li, we will have Glenn Ligon uh, a major American artist, present during Art Basel, Hong Kong. This will be his first solo exhibition in Greater China. Ligon deals with many issues related to the politics of racial identity in American society, what it's like to be a stranger, and how to break down barriers between people. So, yeah, I can't wait to introduce the audience here to Ligon's work. Um, just very, very briefly, um, just what happens to Hauser
0: & Wirth in, in the next five to ten years in Hong Kong?
2: Oh
3: wow. I hope this new level, this new street level gallery will bring us new audiences to get to know our artists and also the gallery. I hope that this new space will also inspire many more of our artists to give us shows here. I hope that uh not only will we engage new collectors, people who are uh, new to the art market. I also hope that we engage the every person, uh, the office ladies who are working upstairs, the finance bankers who are walking around. Um, lots of great plans. And not only am I looking forward to our program in the gallery, uh, there are also many exciting museum shows for our artists coming up in Asia. So for example, right now in Shanghai, our artist Xin fanzhi has a major show at the Pudong Museum of Art. Over in Sydney at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, there's a Louise Bourgeois retrospective coming up. In Seoul, there will be Nicholas Party at the Hoa Museum and then soon... Elaine, I
0: have to interrupt you there. That list, I I think, was extensive and could continue for a long time, but we've run out of time. Elaine Koch, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. And that is all the time we have for today. Thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Chris Chermark, our researchers, Niamh Ekwer, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu, with editing assistance from Lillian Fawcett. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.